What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Valley to Peak Nutrition Podcast. This week, I'm joined by a good friend of mine named Mark Hulsing. Mark and I have uh, been friends for a few years, and we chat quite a bit throughout the year about a, a variety of different topics, but two of those are training and nutrition. He's recently gotten a renewed interest in doing some trail running, and specifically long-distance trail running, or what we would probably call endurance-based activity so we've had a lot of conversations about that and we thought well let's just jump on and do a podcast to chat about them so we look at what the four main things are to consider when trying to decide okay do you need fuel during your workout how much and i think probably of most interest to everyone is what should we be taking in and and how often should we be taking it in so we tackle that and then a number of other questions as well that sort of central around this idea of what should we be focusing on for more of these endurance-based activities. And even if you're not into trail running, you're not into distance running, you're not into ultras, the principles we talk about here would certainly be applicable and carry over into the trail for long hikes, long treks, long backcountry hunts, etc. So I think that there's going to be a nugget in here for you, um, no matter what your interest is. So Uh, Sit back, enjoy the show, grab a pen, grab a pencil, see if there's some things in here that might be able to help you in your own training. If you enjoy the show, leave us a comment, leave us a rating, um, anything that you feel like might be of help. We would appreciate it. So if you got any questions or you've got a topic that you want to see covered on here, please email me at info at v2pnutrition.com. Sit back and enjoy the show. All right. So this largely came about through um, conversations that you and I had had together. We we talk quite a bit about a variety of stuff, as you know, but recently you started to develop a greater passion or maybe maybe it would be better said a, a renewed passion um, for running, specifically trail running. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and kind of what you've got planned? Yeah, as you said, it's kind of like a, a renewed passion, I guess. Um yeah, I mean, my fitness slash health slash weight journey, uh, basically for context, like I was much heavier 12 years ago um, and then lost 50 to 60 pounds. And part of that was running um, just for weight loss. I didn't love it. And then when I started trail running, I really liked it. And I've stayed active for that 12 years doing a variety of things. Um, sometimes it's running, sometimes it's obviously much more hiking focused. Sometimes it's lifting. Uh, and I've varied my training both on purpose, meaning like to get more hunt specific, for example, closer to hunting season. Um, and then I varied it just based on interest. Right. So it's like, oh, if I want to focus on deadlifts right now, they'll just do it because I want to, and it's good and it keeps me active and I like the variety. So, uh, I have gone through some seasons where I was more, I don't want to say serious. I was never like competitive in trail running, but just more interested in it, picked events, trained for those events, but I haven't really done that on the running side for a few years now. Um, and then really it was last summer. I was like, man, I really got the bug to trail run, but it was also so close to hunting season. I didn't want to, uh, start. I was hiking a lot already. Uh, and I didn't want to start trail running and risk injury was the main thing of like, I run when I trail run, it's, they're pretty technical trails. And I was like, gosh, I don't want to, you know, roll an ankle or do anything crazy. Um, so basically I waited till after hunting season and yeah, I was like the, the desire is still there to trail run a bunch. And I'm either going to sign up for an event or also have, uh, some options where I may throw out there and do my own type of event. So I'm training right now. I'm trying to scale mileage 
and increase that for some sort of event that will happen probably in uh, March or April, but I'm still not deciding exactly what that looks like. It'll be anywhere from um, probably a 25K or marathon or potentially a 50K, depending exactly what I do. Yeah, and, and like when we first started talking about you doing this and I knew what you had had planned and you had a couple, I mean, you've already got a, a really good, what, what I would honestly consider higher level understanding of nutrition than the average person, but you had a couple of questions and I thought, man, these would be just such a cool topic for, um, to do as a podcast, because a lot of people write in and, and ask the same questions and it just would be great to have kind of a short resource to send them to where we just have a conversation about a couple of things with it and um, just what your personal experience has been as well. So we'll give, I want to give some background, but we'll look at sort of the, the idea of it is there's with nutrition, there's, you know, pre-run fueling, there's fueling that you can do in the middle of the run, and then there's post-run nutrition and all of those matter. All of those have, could be podcasts in and of themselves, and, and maybe they will be, but this is specifically going to be focused on kind of what to do during the run. And there's, there's really four pieces to focus on and we'll, we'll jump into those, but I think a little background first might be helpful when you look at long events, what you're like, you're running, cause you're running marathon, right? Yeah. It'll be somewhere around uh, marathon distance. Yep. So one of the greatest limiting factors that we know with endurance activities, which is really anything over 60 minutes is the fuel source. And whenever those stores really start to tap out and, you know, kind of a side rabbit trail is we can roughly store, we've got reserves that roughly run between four and 500 grams of carbohydrate, predominantly stored in the muscle and the liver, which provide several hundred calories. But once those are exhausted, we have to replace them. Or that's whenever we start to see people hit the wall. And it's really, you know, like we talk a lot about, especially in the, you know, like in the the backcountry world, outdoor world, a lot about the mental piece of training and, and being outside and doing some of these harder pushes. But the, the, the interesting thing about the fueling piece is even if you have the mental tenacity to push through, once the reserves are gone, you're, 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 you've got to fix it or you'll really start to notice a significant decline in, in, and performance to the tune of about like 60% of your normal capacity. So the flip side of that, if we've got this limited reserve of carbohydrates, again, stored in the muscle and the liver, we have thousands of calories of fat and fat can be used as a source of fuel. So one of the big questions people will often send me is, you know, why wouldn't I, because of that fact, there's no limit. Why wouldn't I choose to something to fuel with something more fat-based as opposed to something more carbohydrate-based? But the, the breakdown of fat is a much slower process. In fact, we know that muscles contract three times faster operating predominantly on carbs as opposed to fat. So like, if you think about, if you think about traveling to New York and we were to be, let's say that you and I were sitting in Seattle and we were going to go to New York, there's really, there's several different ways to get there. You could fly East and go across the U S a few hours in a plane, you'd land there. And alternatively, you could fly around the ocean, around the globe and get there many, many hours later, both will get you there. 
but the time in which and the efficiency in which you get there is much slower in the longer route. And so that's why the focus for intra-run intra or intra-race or you know, fueling during the activity itself is centered around replacing what's used. So question for you, because I know you've been training a little bit. We've talked a little bit about what to do while you're training. Have you found that to be true in your own training or what have you been using on your runs? Yeah, I think, um, as you know, and we've talked about, but again, to give context for listeners, I do a lot of training really early in the morning and typically, you know, that's essentially fasted, right? So I haven't eaten since the night prior. Um, and then on some nights I don't eat after dinner and we're like old people. We eat dinner fairly early at like 5 PM. So I could be going from say like 5 30 PM would be the end of my intake and then starting a training like about 12 hours later, uh, at 5 30 AM. And that's fine for certain things, but I definitely have noticed on other efforts where it's like, man, I don't, I don't feel fueled for this. And so we've talked about, uh, me having more intake after dinner sometimes. Um, but I also think because of that, and I'm not getting up early enough to really get pre-fuel in, um, depending on what that is. But anyways, I've increased my training distances and obviously time, the, the intake during the effort itself becomes more and more important. Um, and so for me, and one of the questions I had for you, when we started talking about this was like, at what point should I really consider that or be strategic about that? So if I'm doing, you know, as I'm doing my running training, not not all runs are long runs, not all runs are the same pace or effort level. And so some of the questions I had were, it's like, if I'm going out for a four to five mile easy run, um, and it's only going to be, you know, 30 to 40 minutes, do I need to do anything there? Or is there like a certain amount of time? And I had potentially an hour in my head where it's like, if I'm doing any effort over an hour, is that when I really need to be more strategic with fueling both in the effort as well as potentially that, that night prior. Um, and so that, you know, that's something that we talked about and that you recommended. It's like, yeah, let's make sure that if we're uh, going to exceed an hour that we're doing some fueling. And so, um, you know, a good recent example is, uh, this past weekend, I did a 10 mile run, a uh, 10 mile trail run. And, you know, it was going to be somewhere between an hour and 45 minutes or so. Um, and so I was definitely, again, it was a very early morning, no intake prior. Um, but fueling during that was incredibly helpful. Um, I mean, it's the, one of the longer runs that I've done in a while and I got to the end of it and felt like I could just keep going. Like it was literally almost hard to stop. Cause like, I feel so good. Um, and, that intake was definitely part of it during the run, uh, compared to other efforts that I've done with less intake that pushed that hour boundary, but where I was really feeling more depleted, even at an hour compared to, in this case, like an hour 45, an hour 50. And I think like <clears throat> what you had mentioned as far as, I guess you didn't directly mention this, but it's what popped in my head there's so much preference in this, right? And, and we have this, we have these sort of set of standards. And I think guys are so often looking for like, what's the optimal insert, whatever it is that they want, but there, there really is 
so much personal preference in it. So we, we've got optimal standards that we can guide people towards, which is nice. And we know that when done, they'll work. But then you also have to balance that with practical, like what's going to work for your schedule. So for you, for example, I know that you get up early asking you to get up even earlier to hit a certain number of carbohydrates for like a pre-workout recommendation, which tends to be like 75 grams, two hours before a person's active is impractical for you. So I think that there is, I think there's a, a spectrum that exists where, okay, we've, we've got this set of optimal recommendations, but you also have to balance that with what's practical for a person's life and realize even if that falls in the middle of what you had been doing versus what's optimal, it's likely an improvement over your baseline. So you really have to kind of evaluate what's your overall goal, what's the most practical thing for your life. And then yes, have an idea of what those optimal standards are. So you've at least got some sort of a, a target to aim for because like, like you, you do a, um, and feel free to correct me if I, if I mess this up, you do a, kind of a group workout and then you'll go do your run. The group workouts done fasted. Then you'll have something, then you'll run, then you'll, you'll do fueling while you're running as well. And ideally, if you were to sit down with a dietitian, they tell you, you need to be eating before the group workout, but for you, you don't notice any limitations in it. So it's, it's not an absolute that you've got to go do that prior to the workout. There's a ton of flexibility and say in this based on the person. Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah, as you said, I'm already getting up at like, usually most days somewhere around 445. Um, I'm just not getting up earlier than that to fuel. <laughs> so it's like, eh, I'm getting up early enough. I, I will say, and it's, it's great what you mentioned. I, I feel like what we're doing isn't optimal in the sense that there are limitations to it because of my timing. I can't do, you know, that pre-run fuel. Um, and maybe I would have better performance if I did but I have to do what I can. And so it's like, how do you optimize what you can control? Because you can't control all the variables. And sometimes that changes based on seasons, on life stage, on whatever. But um, for me, for now, like that's the time, here's the time I can dedicate to training and I have to figure out the best way to make the most of that. Um, and I don't think it is 100% optimal because I think I've even mentioned you, um, there's runs I've done on a weekend where it's like, oh, I. I can go do this at, uh, 2 PM on Saturday afternoon. And I'm obviously fueled at that point because I've had both breakfast and lunch. And, um, those runs that I've done like that aren't common, but I do notice that I perform better on those runs. So it's like my time's better, uh, with even less perceived effort. And I think a lot of that is because I'm fueled, um, more properly for that at the same time. I, I do feel like I perform well on these early fasted workouts and then sometimes double training runs after that. Um, but it doesn't mean it's like that being strategic doesn't help that. Right. So, um, I think that's where I've been and where you've been so helpful is here's what I've been doing. And now that I'm increasing volume and time, what can I do better within those limitations? And that's a lot of what we've talked about. And that's been really helpful. You know, for those, like, if you look back, like talking about that optimal piece or whatever, there are guidelines again, 
that we aim for. So really those guidelines as far as, you know, what should I be eating while I'm active and how much, what time, what should it be in terms of like logistics, literally what, what should I be putting inside of my mouth really sort of depend on four factors. And the first one, and I think the most basic and, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts if, if you've found something basic or how you've simplified this even in, in application in your own life, because I'm not doing anything high endurance based, but right. Like, so the, the very first most important thing is anything under 60 minutes probably doesn't need anything, even if the intensity is high. Once you start pushing that 60 minute threshold out to, you know, even an hour, 15 minutes, an hour and a half, two hours, so on and so forth. It starts to become a little more important that we're replacing what we've used. And the, the why behind that is simply because the rate at which we break down carbs at an effort like that is such that it's metabolizing almost one gram per minute to as high as one and a half grams per minute. And so if you remember earlier, I said, we've got about four or 500 grams in our muscle, as well as our liver. Once you start piling through 60 minutes to an hour and a half of a workout, those are gone based on that. So sort of the cutoff would be anything above 60 minutes, probably start to, you know, probably wise to start thinking about something, anything less than that. You probably don't, don't need anything. Is that kind of what you follow? Yeah, pretty much. And does it make sense then? Like, so we talk about you know, different foods being more fast acting or slow. And obviously you could say, you know, even from a very high level carbs versus protein and carbs are going to be much more fast acting, acting than protein or fat, but even then types of carbohydrates, um, are going to be digested, uh, at different rates, essentially. Does it make more sense for me to use those faster carbohydrates, not only for not because I'm doing this activity, but because of my quote unquote circumstance of timing, meaning I'm, I'm coming off of this fasted night and I'm starting to train early. And so it would be less beneficial for me to take a slower source because it's not going to be as immediately used or available, um, compared to a much quicker, fast acting source that can be used as fuel right then. Cause I'm already, I don't want to say starting depleted, but I, you know, I'm not starting with as much on board as I would if I had done pre-fueling. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes, it makes complete sense. And you know, what you choose matters. And, and I think that that's twofold, right? So what you choose as far as if a, a, a certain food product, what's composed of it, but in addition to that, what else is in it? What I mean by that is whenever you choose, this is, this is such a source of controversy, mostly based off of, I feel like, like just cultural messages, but the more you focus on simple carbohydrates, the faster those carbohydrates break down, the quicker they're going to peak in your blood sugar, the quicker they're going to peak in your blood and the more energy they're going to provide sooner. So if you've not had anything and you eat something like that, the energy delivery is nearly immediate. As a matter of fact, like five to 10 minutes after eating it, it starts to work. It peaks about 60 minutes or so later. 
if you contrast that with not having had had anything, you're now relying on the stores and the stores are called glycogen and they're stored inside of our muscle as well as our liver. Unique thing about the liver glycogen is it typically will provide the blood sugar to help us even just feel mentally alert. The glycogen stored in our muscle though is predominantly responsible for fueling that muscle. Meaning it's not like once I drain the glycogen in my legs, it'll just start knocking on the door of, of my chest and saying, Hey, can I, can I borrow a little bit of your glycogen to continue this endeavor? Cause he's ran out of his legs. It's only, it's only responsible for fueling the muscle that it's in. So once that's tapped, if you're not replacing it, then it goes depleted. So it kind of goes back to your, you know, the question, if you've not had anything to eat, then, and those are, those are spent and you're trying to eat something that's a more complex carbohydrate, which breaks down much slower, slower energy delivery. You're not going to feel the fuel. In fact, you might finish before you get peak, peak amounts of fuel into your bloodstream to, to actually provide any, any sort of um, advantage for performance. Second to that in part two is like in combination with, cause you'd mentioned proteins and fats. Anytime you have fat fiber or protein included with a carb, no matter how simple it is, it's going to be slower to digest. So not only is it slower fuel delivery, but what also happens is it sits in your stomach longer and typically causes people in the middle of an activity to feel any sort of problem in their gut while they're active. So you've heard people say, man, I just get so nauseous or I throw up or my stomach is churning. And a lot of times it's because they've eaten something that's got a combination of those nutrients, which provides slower energy delivery. So yeah, you're hundred percent right. in saying, you know, what you choose because of being fasted or even fed or in the middle of the run will definitely play a role on how long it takes to peak for performance and then what that translates to in terms of performance. I mean, that's part one. There's really a couple of other things that we use to gauge how much fuel do we provide. So it's going to be based on intensity. It's going to be based on the overall time you're active. It's going to be based on weight as well as your degree of training. So if we go back to the time active, because that's something we've talked a little bit about after, so let's say that you've got how long, if, if you don't mind sharing, <laughs> how long will it take you? Do you think to, to put in 26 miles, 26.2? Uh, it totally depends on what race I sign up for. Cause there's such a difference of options that I'm looking at on elevation, for example, that would have a massive impact. Um, I think if I were to do like, if we said more of a typical road marathon, um, somewhere sub four for sure. Um, I don't know how close to three I would be by any means, but somewhere sub four. But again, I think in all reality for the types of terrain that I'm looking at for these events, it's going to extend to be four plus for sure, potentially even five plus, uh, for the more technical, uh, more elevation heavy runs. You're speedy, man. Sub three on the on the pavement. No, 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 not sub three. Sub four. Uh, I don't sub know how even close to three. Even sub four, man. My little legs. I don't know that they can move fast enough to put in that. So the timing, the timing matters. We talked about anything over an hour, and but the same rule applies. So every hour on the hour for as long as you're active, 
you should be replacing and thinking about fueling something, right? And to the tune again of you're going to start, you'll probably start to see themes like 60 grams of carbs, potentially as much as 120 grams of carbs in an hour. And the theory again behind that is if we're using one to one and a half grams every minute in an hour, we then have to replace those to continue to provide some fuel to get through, uh, to get through the activity. Now that sounds like a lot of food. (laughs) Have you, have you had that much or do you know about how many grams you're getting whenever you're in the middle of your runs? I haven't been doing that much. No. And I had the same thing of like when, cause you sent me some recommendations again, based on my weight and things like that of like, Hey, if you're doing activities for these timelines, look at that. And it does seem like a lot. It seems like a whole lot. Um, and I remember doing that, you know, part of when you and I first started talking years ago was when we were planning for the hundred mile death hike. And, you know, I was very specific on, on that effort, uh, to really plan my intake, total number of calories, making sure I'm staying on top of it through the day. So I'm replenishing. Um, but to me, it's also very different of hiking versus trail running, um, and thinking of taking in calories. And so this is probably a a separate conversation, but thus far I've tried to focus most of my intake, uh, just being liquid based. And so I've been using tailwind to try and get calories. Um, and then I've done some, uh, some gummy bears. Uh, I just haven't yet needed to get into solid foods. Um, and I think I might, you know, as we get into longer and longer runs, but right now, if I'm staying in, um, two something hour territory for training currently, um, on my longer runs, then, being able to only use like tailwind and some gummy bears and things like that has been sufficient. Yeah. And, and I think it's, I think it's worth noting, like when they start say, talking about 90 grams in an hour, 120 grams in an hour, when we we've, there's been studies that have shown a dramatic improvement in performance at those rates. But when you, when you really start to dive deep into those studies, the people involved with those studies have undergone like what they call training, gut training, to be able to take in that much. If, if I were to try to go out right now and put in 120 grams of carbs in an hour, every hour for several hours, it's, it's highly likely my stomach wouldn't be able to, to handle it. And a lot of that has to do with like the amount of water that's drawn in simply because of the amount of carbs in the, in the gut and, and fluid intake, all sorts of different factors can contribute to that. But I think it's interesting that we can take in that much. And it's interesting that that shows a dramatic improvement in performance. If you can train the gut to take in that much, but again, probably highly impractical for most people to be able to take in that much. And, and, and that's like, to give you an idea, a bagel is about 50 grams. So you're talking about double plus some every hour for multiple hours in a row. And that's, if you're eating something, if you flip it, in reverse. And we talk about the, the liquid calories, like you're doing with tailwind there's, cause if I remember right, there's 30 grams in eight ounces or 12. Yeah. So, I mean, you can obviously mix it on how yeah. you want, but one scoop, uh, cause I was just looking at as well. One scoop is 25 grams. Um, and then their recommendation is they say two to three scoops with 20 to 24 ounces of water. So I was just doing quick math on like my last longer run and I was doing 
Oh, let me do that with gummy bears real quick. I'm almost there. I was, yeah, I was doing total grams of carbs between tailwind and then supplemental with those gummy bears a little bit, probably 40 to 45 grams per hour. Yeah. So it can, it can definitely stack up. And I think one of the, like one of the reasons I'm such a fan of gummy bears is there's no fluid, right? So if you start, if you think about the tailwind recommendation of two to three scoops and 24 ounces of fluid, and you're trying to get that in every hour, hour and a half, that's a lot of fluid sloshing around in your stomach while you're running, as opposed to the gummy bears, there's, there's almost no fluid. So I think that there's, there's definitely a balance. And again, it could be a mix and it's experimenting with what works for you, but that is, you know, time active is one of the big, one of the big sort of guiding, guiding lights, I guess you could say, in terms of trying to decide how much and how often. And even if you take two people, like if, if you run a road marathon and sub four and it takes me six hours, I'm going to require even more because again, it's so personalized. We couldn't just say, okay, you know, well, Mark has to take three packs of gummy bears and I should take three packs of gummy bears whenever I'm really out on the course, another two or three hours. So it's, it's very individualized and tailored to the person. How much, um, how much does the recommendation really change based on body weight, based on size of the individual? Yeah, that's a good question. So it will it will, it depends, I think on twofold for the individual, one would be body weight. And then the other would be degree of training. So the more trained you are, the easier the effort's going to be compared to your baseline of maybe when you started. So the better fuel utilization you're going to have, meaning 45 grams may last you longer than 45 grams did when you first started training. So it depends on even if a person's really heavy or really light, if they're well-trained, they'll utilize the fuel better. So that'll adjust the the recommendations to some degree um, as well. But when you look at overall carb recommendations, particularly for performance, almost everything is in grams per kilo, right? And, And the number of grams per kilogram will change depending on the intensity of the activity. So obviously the more intense, the higher the recommendation, the less intense, the lower recommendation. But those are really the main four intensity of the activity. So the more intense that it is, meaning like if you're doing lots of sprints or if you're doing hill repeats, or if you're in the backcountry and you're climbing a lot, there's lots of elevation change. The more intense, the greater the use of carbs is going to be. In fact, we know that like fuel is dynamic. It's, it's very rarely just relying on carbs, proteins, or fats It's shifting between all of them. But when that pendulum shifts towards like 85% of all you have in you, meaning you're really working hard, it's almost an 100% reliance on carbs. So the greater the intensity, the, the, the higher the recommendation is going to have to be. Total time active. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I don't know if this is like a fair question, but I just had the thought. Um, is heart rate a good or maybe the best gauge of intensity? Um, if we really want, if I really wanted to look at like, okay, here's a run that's on, you know, different terrains and this run. And I, I kind of know both my efforts as well as my heart rate. Will that help me guide obviously other than just feeling, but give me some objective data using like my average heart rate or the heart rate zone to really gauge intensity of that specific effort. 
I think it, I mean, I think it will not so much because, and I, I mean, you're, you're, you're well-versed in this too. So I'd love to hear your thoughts, but I think it would just because it gives you something to go off of. Right. I mean, I have developed this mantra a while ago, what gets measured gets managed. It's really hard to know whether or not you're making strides toward, towards improvement with any kind of performance for that matter, or really anything. <laughs> if you're not, if you're not measuring if you don't have metrics to see improvement with. So you certainly could, you know, and set up like certain target heart rates over a certain period of time. But what I've used a lot with people is just rating of perceived exertion, meaning you're ranking yourself between a one and a 10. You've got an ideal, you know, goal that you'd like to hit. So for example, if your training runs normally three miles, you do it at like an, a, a rating of a five and you're trying to increase your performance a little bit, maybe the next time go out and rate it as six. It's probably not as precise as doing something like a heart rate monitor, but it's also probably more realistic for people to do that as opposed to going out and buying a heart rate monitor and monitoring their heart weight during a run. What do you think? What do you typically measure? Um, I do use a heart rate. Uh, sometimes I have used like an actual chest strap and sometimes I just use my watch cause it does it. And they're not generally as accurate as like a chest strap heart rate monitor, but it does give me an idea. Um, but it is something I've been trying to trying to work into my training only because uh if i'm not careful i will do all of my runs at the same effort and again i by that i mean perceived effort and so i've been trying to pair that with looking at my heart rate um and then forcing myself to have some of my slower runs in that lower uh, aerobic base uh, cause if not, I just tend to push like the aerobic like threshold to the high end, um, which isn't, you know, isn't good, right. You need some efforts like that, but not all of your efforts should look like yeah. that from a training perspective. And so I've just been, I, I think more curious about that recently. Um, I went out the other day and did, uh, I've done actually it was earlier this week. I've done two runs on very similar distances and very similar terrain and the first run was, I think my pace was like 8.28.30 average, but my heart rate was like mid, I want to say 150s. Um, and then I did that again, not the same run, but very, very, very similar run um, a couple of days later and purposely tried to lower my perceived effort, knowing that my time would be slower, but I was also curious to see where my average heart rate would be. And the time was slower by, gosh, dang it. I can't remember if it was like 40 or 60 seconds um, per mile, but my heart rate was like, I think 12 beats per minute lower. So it was in like the low 140s, which at first to me didn't sound like much, but again, going on perceived effort, those two runs felt extremely different, like very, very different. Um, whereas even that, you know, like that 10 beat to minute or 10 beats per minute, um, to me, didn't sound like a big number, but on perceived effort, it, it was, those were two very different runs. I, I was surprised. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's interesting. You bring that up, like even the training piece, as well as the heart rate, it's something that I've been looking at because you and I are going to be going to Alaska in June on a 
long, <laughs> a long, long hike. fun adventure. <laughs> and so thinking about gearing up for training for that, for myself through the spring and, and into the early parts of summer, you know, trying to even refresh my own memory about like, what's going to be the best strategy to, to tackle something like this. And thinking about that heart rate piece. And I think, I think there's um, a misconception among a lot of folks, just a lot of folks in general. And, and I, could, I could be wrong. Maybe this is, again, just my perception. Maybe people have it way more dialed than I think that they do. But I think the, 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 the perception is I'm going to go out. I'm going to absolutely punish myself into the ground. The more exhausted I am, the more my performance is going to improve. And I'm just going to extend the time on that every week. And that, that'll make me better. And while it certainly is going to be better and, and be more, you'll be more trained than if you were to sit on the couch, there's a methodical approach that tends to rely more on kind of the crappiest type of training on the planet, which is just slow, methodical, sub-maximal is kind of the fancy word that they use, which means you're kind of able to carry a conversation. doesn't mean it's easy, but you're really just doing long, slow work over time and building on that week over week to improve your performance for a lot of what everyone listening to this likes to do, which is just, is being in the mountains. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You just be, um, even though it doesn't feel like you're doing as much effort, you're becoming more efficient by building that base for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting that you've, you, you're talking about the heart rate thing. Cause I think that's probably something I'll do is just pick up a cheap chest rate monitor. And I have, I have a watch. It does it too, but my brain is like, well, that's not true. You need to get, like, you, yeah. look at, you look at the analytics, you're like, well, it's fancy, but it's not true. So, you know, I think you can get a, a chest rate monitor that syncs with a watch on Amazon for like 26 bucks, if I remember right. And yeah, who knows how true that is, but do you have one you recommend? Uh, I don't, I've had, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't couldn't even say the brand name because again, it was an Amazon. Who knows what <laughs> Chinese type thing uh, is what I had prior. It did seem uh, to work very well, though. Um, part of the reason I haven't uh, done that more recently is just in colder weather. Um, I, I've honestly tend to forget to put it on under my layers because, like that run I did the other day was ten degrees, and so for whatever reason, now that it's been colder, I haven't been using the actual chest strap as much. It's probably too cold in the morning and take your shirt off and throw it on, man. <laughs> <laughs> right? You're just wing it and go by the watch. I don't blame you. Cool. So let's jump into, um, I've compiled some questions I've got that are relevant to the topic. Some of them are just like questions that I've pulled out of conversations you and I have had, but I think just sort of that rapid fire answering stuff really helps people understand this more. So I'd love for you, I mean, you to chime in too. Like I said, one of the reasons I've thought of you is for these nutrition quote unquote shorts, which this isn't going to be short, but that's all right. For these shorts is like, you have more than just a baseline knowledge of nutrition and you have experience. You do this as often as anybody does. And so I'd love to hear even your, your perspective too. It's not educated, but I can share my experience. <laughs> <laughs> Every time we've talked about it, I've never been like, man, this dude is off his rocker. It's always <laughs> what is pretty, he talking about? It's always pretty good. So, and, and, uh, and I just think uh, an additional perspective is good. I mean, I don't, I don't want to assume like, you know, I've got the only answers other, other people like to hear alternatives. So 
At, at what point, and I think we might have covered this, but at what point is fueling training slash an event needed? Training, fasted, fed, is it sustainable that you should eat something before or the night before? So we talked about like the before piece. What do you do or have you changed anything like since you've been doing the fasted workouts, knowing that your volume's increasing because you're adding the runs on at, um, at the end of your, your group workouts, have you changed anything that you do the night before? Um, for longer efforts? Yes. And so that could be one of two things you just mentioned one, if I'm doing like the group workout that I do and a run, um, I'm more conscious of probably having some sort of snack after dinner before um, those mornings. And then in particular on my longer runs, which are usually on uh, Saturday, um, I'm more conscious about doing some sort of fueling again between dinner and the morning. Um, there's still been plenty of nights where I haven't had any sort of snack at night and wake up and do either the group workout or a shorter run, like a sub hour length run. Um, and again, I always feel fine doing those, but I think for me, it's, uh, those double efforts or a single effort, uh, that I, I think I mentioned prior that is going to exceed an hour is where I start to pay more attention to that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm same way. So I, I get up really early. I have for a long time. I'm the same way. I don't have time to sit down, eat something, wait for it to digest a little bit and then start working out. So for years, uh, many, many years, I've always eaten a giant dinner. It's the biggest meal that I eat of the entire day. And then just don't eat anything before I work out. And then I'll eat something, you know, after that, but the night before, um, typically later in the evening, like eight or 9 PM it's, I eat about a hundred or a hundred plus grams of carbs so that when I wake up in the morning, I, and my workouts are never more than 60 minutes. So, well, I mean, unless I'm training for something specific, but I know that whatever fuel is already there will be sufficient for anything that I'm going to go and take on. So that's what's worked the best for me. And, um, it even sort of, I think, I think a lot of people hearing this would probably be shocked at a hundred, you know, to hundred to 150 grams of carbs at 9 PM, but it sort of puts that whole, or maybe it doesn't put the whole myth to rest, but from a, from a, from a, from a scientific standpoint, if you're not exceeding the need during the day, timing doesn't matter. It doesn't mean, meaning like, it doesn't matter at, at 7 PM, there's not like a, you know, a, um, uh, you know, Cinderella's fairy turning things into fat because it sees a magical clock. If it doesn't exceed the total need during the day, the clock isn't as important. And I think, I think the other thing to view nutrition as too, and this is a complete rabbit trail, but is in terms of a triangle and on the top of each of those triangles, you can put different focus points. So you could put training and performance, you could put body aesthetics, you could put something else. Anytime you're leaning heavier towards one, the other two will probably be compromised because the approach to them is different. So for example, if I want to do really, really well in my training and I'm leaning that triangle closer to performance, I'm going to be eating later. I'm going to be eating at my calorie need or above it, which means my body composition may not be as lean if I were leaning that triangle closer to that, where I'm in a little bit more of a deficit. I'm a little more focused with my, you know, measurements, making sure I'm accurate. 
it's really challenging to accomplish nine things or nine focus points with nutrition and performance whenever you know, most of them will contradict the other. You really have to train in terms of, or, or think about nutrition and training, I think, in terms of seasonal, like what's my focus going to be? I'm going to pursue that hard. And these other areas may suffer a bit. Now, even though my triangle is more shifted towards like everyday life training and just doing the stuff that I enjoy, it doesn't mean that I'm just eating like an idiot and letting body composition go completely out the window. Right. I'm, it's not like I'm seeing like, Oh, ice cream, that's gotta be great for my performance. I'm going to eat, you know, an entire tub of it. There's gotta be some sense in there, but for the most part, I think that triangle theory is good. Yeah. It, if I can ask, what are some examples of that snack for you? So if you say roughly hundred ish grams of carbs, a lot of times, what's the source of that? Oh, it's not a snack. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a full on throw. So when, whenever a couple of years ago, I came to, I came over to visit you guys and we did some whitetail hunting, which was really more just hanging out and hanging out in the cold and the blind, but it was a, such a blast. You oh, guys, wow. like we eat, we would eat early and, you know, then I, you'd give me, you'd let me eat whatever I want, but I didn't have anything after that. That was totally different than what we normally do. Typically we'll eat something like light earlier in the afternoon, my, my wife, myself, and, uh, and, and grant our son. And then I'll eat, like I said, biggest meal of the day. So typically that's a large portion of some kind of starch, whether it's oats or a wrap or bread or rice or tortillas or pasta or whatever, some sort of a starch, typically a big plate of fruit, some protein and some kind of veggie. So like, it depends on how lazy and tired I am. If I'm real lazy and tired, <laughs> I, I like the, like the realism <laughs> of that. Uh, it really depends on how lazy and tired I am. It's the truth, man. If like, you know, I, I don't, I've found that some people's perception of a dietitian are, you know, we sit and make up these beautifully composed plates with varieties of color. And it's like, no, it does it meet my goal or not and how easy can i get this on the plate and go to bed so like prime example of if i'm really lazy it would be a big bowl of oats a big piece of usually like sliced apples with berries with some peanut butter some steamed vegetables and some eggs that would be like a standard lazy dish if i'm really feeling ambitious i might cook some rice <laughs> or or some pasta or make myself a wrap or something like that but there's always some kind of a fruit in that which like one it's not it's not strategic in the sense that i just love fruit so i eat it it is i guess if you wanted to argue or if i wanted to really hype it up and make it sound like i was strategic with my dinners which i'm not again i just eat it because i love it but from a strategic standpoint and I think that this loops back into the conversation of fueling while you work out. The the more, I don't want to phrase this, the, the more variety, the source of carbs that you take in, the greater the uptake. So carbs are broken down into, I'm going to call these channels. And you have channels that your body will uptake them in. For example, the, the carbohydrate found in fruit will belong to one channel. The carbohydrate found in rice will belong to another channel. The carbohydrate found in something else will belong to another channel. The more that you've got a source for each of those channels, the greater the uptake. If you were to try to pile all of those into one channel, it gets 
you don't absorb as much, right? There's too much there. Some of it makes it in, some of it doesn't. That's really sort of mystifying it more than I want to, but it paints a good picture. It's kind of like an open door. If you think about a mall and, you know, there's three mall, there's three doors to allow people in, in the mall and there's a big sale and they open one door and the entire line tries to push through that door. Well, you know, it's going to be a very long line. There's going to be a lot of crowding and it's going to take a long time for all those people to get in. But if you open all three doors, it's a much smoother process. Right. So the fruit is different than the oats. And again, it's not intentional. It's just something I like, but there is a quote unquote performance advantage to it. Cool. Yeah. Kind of a little bit of a nerdy piece. What's uh, what's your snack, your late night snack? Um, I haven't been doing it much um, up until recently. So it's, it's literally been very lazy. Like what can I go find really fast? Um, It's a couple times recently I've been, just doing uh, toast with like a little bit of peanut butter and then usually sprinkle that with like some granola. That's like a quick and easy one, a couple pieces of that. And it's again, just more than anything, it's like less strategic and more, this sounds great. And I should probably have some calories before doing two workouts tomorrow morning type thing. To be honest, the other day you were sort of sharing with me, like what you had done during the day and you got to the snack part and I had some, some ambition building or not ambition. I had just some excitement waiting to hear what, like, cause you turned me on to overnight oats and that's changed my life. <laughs> so I was excited to hear what the snack was. And you were like, I had some, uh, some popcorn. I was like, wah, wah. <laughs> yeah, I know such a disappointment, but if it fits the bill, I guess that that's all that matters. Yeah. All right. How much fuel timing and amount potentially double with the uptake of two hours? Does it matter? Should I count calories? Should I wing it? What's the value disadvantage to all of those? How much should hunger be the guide? This, I loved this question because it covers so many different things. And I'm, I'm curious for you, what have you, what, what do you do? Do you kind of, do you track stuff or do you kind of let hunger be the guide? Um, right now I'm letting hunger be the guide. And we had, again, this is a conversation that you and I had had, uh, prior to the podcast, not for the show, but just you and I talking, um, as I mentioned prior, I basically have this 10 plus year journey of living a more active, healthy lifestyle. And in that time have been interested in nutrition again, not with any sort of education, but just like, I'm going to try this. I've read that. Let's try that. So over 10 plus years, I've tried a lot of different things and then obviously figured out uh, what well works for me or what works well for me. Sorry. Um, and then basically I keep an eye on my weight, not so much strategically, because honestly, at this point, it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't change much. Um, and I had talked with you about now that I'm doing these longer efforts, like I, I know that I'm going to be, um, there's potential where I could get too light just because I'm doing a lot more output. Uh, and I talked with you about, I generally feel best around 185. And sometimes I walk around a little bit heavier, like 187. Sometimes I'm a little bit lighter, like 182, 183. Uh, but 185 is kind of a sweet spot. And then when I drop below 182-ish, um, I feel too light and too fragile, uh, which sounds may sound crazy to people. But I can basically usually really tell if I'm like, four pounds this way, you know, plus or minus if I'm 187 or 183, like zero question, I can tell without getting on a scale. Um, 
So all that said to say, I've been trying to stay in that 182 to 185 range without needing to count calories or get too specific of, I did a 12 mile run today. I have to do this to make sure I'm not at too much of a deficit. Um, so far that's been okay, but I will say that I have, um, I've trended lighter for sure. Um, like at the beginning of the year, I was definitely 186, 187, and I've basically been 183 ish for the most part. Um, if we average things out, um, and so I'm definitely trending lighter. And so right now I'm just kind of seeing like, all right, am I going to stay here? Or, um, if I start dropping more, I need to be more specific about that. And so it, at that point, that's when I would decide, okay, I need to get more specific about counting calories, or can I just kind of continue to let hunger be the guide? What I personally need to avoid is going, oh, I ran 12 miles this morning. I can eat whatever I want, or I ran 12 miles and I don't want to get lighter. So of course I should eat this and that and every other thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're kind of like letting hunger be the guide, but really using your weight, either going up or down as, as an assistant, if you will, to kind of say, okay, you know, hunger has been pretty spot on and telling me if I need more or less. And if it, if, if not, then, then you just continue with the course. Yeah. And again, like I'm, since I have so much history and I'm really boring with what I eat, meaning like very consistent, um, you mentioned like the overnight oats, I've been doing that literally 300 plus days a year for, I don't know how many years. Um, my lunches also don't vary too much. My snacks don't vary too much. Even our dinners, we rotate through a pretty regular menu. So I just, I know both by feel as well as consistency, like what my intake is. Um, but there definitely has been days where it's just like, I am just like, I've eaten what I normally eat, but I am, you know, 20% hungrier. Like I'm really need that snack after dinner or not. And so I have been letting hunger be the guide, um, in certain ways like that for sure. So do you, like, if, if you're noticing, because like one of the questions you'd said is you like, (laughs) when I read the email, you were like, I've been hungry, all caps, (laughs) <laughs> like, you know, exclamation point, I'm, I've been feeling it, which would make sense. You're, you, I mean, you've really ramped things up. Do you, on the days where you're noticing, yeah, it's like, it's up there. Are you just adding a snack in later or are you eating more of like, maybe you go back for seconds, whereas normally you wouldn't. Um, yeah, the meals don't change necessarily too much. I mean, maybe slightly, um, but it's more the in-betweens. So not only like after dinner, but some days between lunch and dinner, you know, that mid afternoon, uh, for me, like usually around two 30 ish. Some days I have a snack, some days I don't. And then some days I'm just like flat out. Oh, hundred percent. I need a snack right now. Right. Um, so I've just been paying more attention to like those in-between meals, how much I'm wanting or needing a snack, and then still trying to make uh, good decisions when I do pick up, uh, any extra intake between meals. Nice. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I think that it's a circle back to the question, should you count calories? Should you go off of hunger? I think it's preference. The, the value of tracking calories is, is the value of tracking anything. There's so much precision and less emotion and less speculation, less curiosity, right? Like one of the things that we talk about all the time with, 
even being in the mountains is confidence and, and not to say that a person's arrogant, it's just confident in your abilities. It just, it just, it's a more enjoyable experience to be out there. You're not worried. You're not panicked, nothing like that. And I think that the same could be true with this is if, if you know exactly where you're at and, and you're doing some sort of a race, that whole, you know, boy, I sure hope I did this right. Part of the equation is gone, but it does offer a layer of complexity that most people just don't want to deal with. And that's okay too. The beauty of relying on hunger is if, if you, if you've got the ability to really recognize what those cues look like, it can be a great guide because essentially what's happening is your body is used to operating at one weight and it's designed it's, it's got internal regulators designed to stay at that weight for the most part. There will be some variance, but for the most part, somewhere around that weight. If you're not getting enough because the output is high or because, you know, let's say you're in some sort of a desolate situation, you don't have enough food or whatever, it's going to send hunger cues you to you to, to fix this. If you don't fix this, we're going to drop the weight. And as far as it knows, it's, a, it's in a survival type of a situation. On the flip side of that, it also prevents us from going too far overboard, right? Meaning it's going to stifle those hunger cues if we've got enough energy in to prevent us from putting on excess weight. So if you're paying attention to those hunger cues and then also honoring them, meaning they show up, you realize you've had a tough endeavor. So you feed, you eat, that can be a great guide without having the complexity of measuring things and tracking and, and all of the nuances that can come with calorie counting. Mm. Yeah. And I, when we were talking about it, I, I think I, like I said many times, like I feel maybe that I'm very naive or arrogant in thinking this, but I, I, there's a tremendous value in my opinion to counting. Like there really, really is. And if this were me 10 years ago, I should absolutely be counting. And I did then. And I'm not saying I, I nail it perfect now, but I feel like so many people who've never counted before, they have they have very uh, inaccurate perceptions of things and their intake in general. Um, now that I've done it for a long time and again, I'm very consistent with my meals and my intake, I, I can roughly know in general what my intake is. And then at the same time, again, using tools, in addition to hunger, just monitoring my weight to say, here's where I want to be. I want to be in this, you know, three pound range of 182 to 185. Um, I don't freak out if there's a day higher or a day lower, but again, like on averages and watching trends, if I stay here and even that, like that number is very much informed by, for me, years of experience of knowing when I'm doing endurance type activities, I literally feel more heavy, more sluggish above 185. Um, but when I get much below 182, it may be fine for the endurance piece, but my overall like feeling of durability and things like that begin to suffer. Um, so again, I feel like it's almost a luxury for me at this point to say, I don't have to count calories partially based on experience. Um, and partially just knowing my body and like, here's where I want to be. And if I can just stay in that sweet spot, I, I think I can get away without counting calories. It's, it's so, I mean, I love that. And I remember, I think it was a couple of years ago, we had the same conversation in the context of even hunting, like you were trying to hover at this certain weight and you said, you know, I, I could, 
I think I could go lower than that. That might give me the ability to be more agile, maybe maybe quicker in the backcountry, but it compromises my strength. So if I if I do end up harvesting something, killing something in the backcountry, the ability to haul that out is less. And I think it's a conversation in the in the in the world of outdoors. Like that's worth thinking about because so often you hear of like guys rebuttal to someone saying i'd like to wait lighten the weight of my pack is well you should just lighten the weight of yourself and maybe some people feel like they could do some work in that arena but there is a threshold where you know where some is good more isn't necessarily better and i think i think a misconception with the whole calorie thing is it's not intended to be done forever. And so when, like when someone onboards with Valley to Peak, if they don't have any experience with nutrition, they don't have any experience of having had tracked their nutrition or anything like that, I'll suggest it not as a forever mechanism that you've got to be married to, but I say it's for two reasons. Number one, to give us an idea about nutrition, like what is four ounces of meat and what does that contribute to my need, you know, not, not just from a calorie standpoint, but even from a protein standpoint, let's say, because you need a certain amount of protein to recover well from training. And then the second piece of that would be so that we can get what we want, right? Everybody wants to maximize their efficiency. And I mean, that's sort of is even a, a word that's overused now, but you, you want to achieve this weight, you want to achieve health, but you don't want it to be a four-year process and it doesn't need to be. So when you're tracking things and you know that those numbers are where they need to be, it's not a matter of if you reach it, it's just a matter of when and the efficiency is so much better when you have actual data. Now, once you reach the goal, then we go into like what, what we call the third part of the program, which is maintenance and management. Now, how do you manage this while getting rid of these tools that are, that are, that are tedious? And my story is kind of the same as yours. I, when I first lost weight, I did track and I don't do it as much anymore. And it, it was the best thing to teach me about food. Like what's in food? What do I need? What do portion sizes mean in context to my need? And it also taught me a ton about hunger. Like I just had this much what I'm feeling right now is just the desire to eat because I love the taste of food, <laughs> right? It's, it's not a specific need. So it taught me a lot about, oh, well, you know, it's been a few hours. I only had this much. This truly probably could be hunger. So it helped me recognize what those look like. So, yeah, I, I think that, that that balance and that mix of doing both at different seasons of life is, is great. All right. Any last parting words? Uh, just apologies. Cause this was supposed to be short. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I think it's, I think it's great. So hopefully everyone enjoyed it and you're a pro at this. What, how should I be wrapping this up? What should I tell people? Oh, I don't know. I, I only stick to a script of, I feel like I want to say, if you have any questions for us, please send an email to podcast at exomongear.com and that whole thing, but that would not be relevant to your show right now. <laughs> That's okay. It's gotta be better than me. Cause usually I'm like, man, I don't, I don't know what you tell people. So I think it's, you're supposed to, you're supposed to, you're supposed maybe to like say, it. Yeah. You're supposed to say something about like liking it or subscribing or follow. That's a part of the frustrating thing with the podcast is like guys listening to this on Spotify are going to have a different uh, experience and call it an opportunity to engage than guys listening to it on Apple, for example, because some buttons say subscribe, some say follow and some podcasts 
apps you can leave a review and then in some you can't and so like they're yeah who knows what you're supposed I, to do i think you just did it and <laughs> right so look at what your buttons say do whatever and do the button yeah do the buttons and leave a review and uh, if you are interested or you do have questions you can send them to info at v2p nutrition.com but if you have questions about hunting stuff you can send it to podcast at exomart uh, mountain gear.com thanks man i appreciate it awesome thank you <laughs>